This morning we are in Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. So we're going to actually start in 29. But before we get started, I want to kind of give you the background, the story of this. This is um, the setting up of the patriarchs of Israel, right? So the guy's name is Jacob now, but God will change his name to Israel. And that's where he will get that um, wonderful name that we have a nation of still today. And this story is about two sisters who fell in love with the same man, whether they liked it or not. And I say that because their dad forced the marriage, at least on the older one. Uh, the second one was pretty much, they knew that that was going to happen. But um, it does say that, that Leah loved Jacob, but I don't ever think that Jacob really loved Leah, which is a shame because um, when you look into the story longer, Jacob actually loses Rachel and, and he is left with, with Leah and the two concubines that he gets out of this marriage as well. And it's a story I think kind of tragic because he starts off, he wants to love one man, the environment pushes him to another thing, and um, it just doesn't go well. And it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a tragedy, but God works out, out through all things, right? And he creates a nation um, from four different wives. Why God did that, I don't know. Um, I think if you look we're studying the book of Job at Community Bible Study right now. And I always think, well, Job would have been a better candidate to build a nation off of than maybe Abraham would have. However, I, um, God has a plan. Man has a problem. And the bigger the problem that God attacks through his genealogy, I think it just proves that he is so much more the God, right? If you look at Israel and how they came about and how they do, how they, they, they fall in the same ways that the world does, um, worse in many ways, and that is in their genes. By the time Jesus comes to get, um, to be born, he has got that corrupt sin nature in him, but he is able to overcome that with his blood, right? Because he is perfect. So I praise God for that. And what better story? Because you could always have a say, well, you know, you didn't, you didn't have to take on everything. Well, he did. He, he took on everything. He took on everything that we struggle with and even our uh, background, right? Uh, whether it comes from our family and whatnot, he's able to do that. So God mends the brokenhearted when he, we surrender our relationships to him. So we're going to start in verse 31 of chapter 29. Because that's kind of where the, the birthing story starts and uh, the tragedy begins in this story. So verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, so when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, I think that's interesting, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. And then she became pregnant a third time to give birth to another son. And his name, he was named Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I have, have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for he, she said, now I will praise the Lord, and then stopped having children. 
The Lord hears the brokenhearted. And if you look at the names of how she named her kids, how would you like to be that, kid, that guy? It's like, wow, your mom didn't get love, did she? Um, that's, that's something there. But look at when she gets to Judah. And it says, now I will praise the Lord. I think she is not concerned about the praise of her husband. She's not concerned about the love that her husband is going to give her. Maybe he's shown affection to her at this point by now. I don't know. But now I will praise the Lord. Is We know that Leah has decided to give God praise over everything else and any other circumstances. And her broken heart, in a sense, has been healed. And it's interesting that Judah is the house that uh, Jesus will come from, is the house that will be the ruling house because Simeon, Simeon and um, the other guy, Simeon, and who was it? Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, and then eventually Levi too. He, they all kind of mess up, right? And we'll, we'll get into that story later on. But Levi becomes the priest, and um, so they get redeemed out of that. Uh, the other two houses, Simeon gets a house, but um, Reuben does not. Uh, he, he messes up in a big way. We'll get to that too. So this morning, a lot of things we're going to be talking about deal with marriage. Okay, If you look at this story and you look at how it goes, this is a marriage story if I've ever seen one. So Leah is going to have a tough row to hoe. Right? She sees her row out there. She, she knows her lot in life, and she knows it's going to be tough, but I don't know if she ever imagined it would be this tough. And God honors Leah by allowing her to have children. However, Jacob's love has always been and probably always will be for Rachel. So we have a divided love, and what a great picture that we have here of idolatry. And how often do we do this between God and something else? Um, if you look at this as a great illustration of triangulation and things where you create yourself a victim mentality. And so you say, Rachel's my reward. Leah, I'll deal with. And so Leah makes me do this. I will run to my reward, which is Rachel kind of thing. Um, you can do this in, in a lot of different ways. But it's a divided love, and I, I would say that Jacob's probably made a, a little bit of an idol of, of Rachel, but the hand that was dealt him was from her father, Laban, right? So I'm not, Jacob's by, by means not off the hook, because he has a responsibility to take care and love both wives. If he so chooses to take them, he could have stopped the, the arrangement right at the beginning. He did not. Um, and so I'm not giving him any out on that, but it's just really tricky. Jesus illustrates this with God and money in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. It says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And I don't think it is really possible to serve two wives. That's why we promote monogamy in church, which means one husband, one wife, right? Uh, there's many times you see it go different in the Bible, and I think you see a lot of times, I, I would say every time, you see heartbreak that goes with it on one side or the other. Um, favorites are played, things, it just doesn't go well. You can't do that. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in church and think that you are fooling anybody, 
right? Folks, I've been a youth pastor way too long to be able to see the, t- the signs, and I'm telling you, um, I think that's why people don't like your youth pastors being senior pastors is because they see the tells too easy in the adults, okay? It's not much different. People are people. They're just easier to read as kids, but the, the signs are there when you're an adult, right? Now, have I come down and browbeat you? No, I browbeat myself just as much as I do you, right? Um, we all are sinners. We all need to be saved. We all need to um, walk toward God's glory. And so that means we need to put our foot back over the fence onto God's side and walk away from the fence, right? So a divided heart is to have a divided life. And the world comes the world comes into the religion, and religion comes into the world, and both are spoiled. You can't live that way. They're going to see that you're a fake Christian. We're going to see that you're a fake Christian, and it's, it doesn't happen, right? So at some point in time, if you want to walk towards sanctification, you have to suck it up and follow the Lord, right? That's what it comes down to. Wow. I thought you said you're going to be rough on us. I'm rough on myself too because I have to do the same thing, right? It's easy to drift. It's easy to drift back toward that fence and find out, oh, what, what's it look like over there, right? I wonder, what, what would life be if I walked that way, right? We are always drifting towards sin. We never come. We are the worst lying car in the world. <laughs> it always steers to the wrong instead of the right, right? <laughs> See what I did there? Yes, thank you for a little chuckle. I appreciate them. Uh, when, the love, when love is a one-way street, I find in most cases, it comes like this. Um, you have a desire for one thing, and men desire sex, and women desire emotion, right? And so women, they also des- desire security too, but I think security comes, I think in a good relationship, security is a given, okay? We'll say that. So I'm just going to take security out of it. When it comes down to it, when you have some of the basic things, guys desire sex, girls desire emotion. So men, they will give emotion to get sex, okay? They will tell their wife how they feel, or unfortunately in this world, they'll tell their significant other how they feel, and uh, they'll say, I love you, to manipulate to get what they want, right? But I love you. I love you. Does he really mean I love you? What does I love you mean? Do you really have commitment if he won't put a ring on your finger? If he won't say I do? If he doesn't trust you enough to go to the altar? That is hard for me to hear. And and likewise, it goes the other way. Women give sex to get emotion and sometimes security, right? You see that when um, in a, a lot of places, especially in this neighborhood, right? Um, well, he pays the bills. He gets the, the job done, right? And they come from a rough life, so it's, it's a step up, right? I can give to get. And that's not right. That's not what relationships are built on. A relationship built on this is destructive. And I see it that we are a three-part being because our creator is a three-part being, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think we're kind of a three-part being as well. We have a physical, emotional, and spiritual self that we have to deal with. 
And when we don't put God in the middle of the relationship, we use two of the three parts to kind of fill in God's structure. I always say it like it's a, I would say a square plug in a round hole, but in this case it's a triangle shake plug in a round hole, right? We can, we can have three points touching the hole where it's supposed to be, and we can move that plug around so it feels like it's right. And if we only have two of those touching, if we spin it really fast, and so we keep going in our busyness, and we don't slow down, we can feel like we are being satisfied, like we're being fulfilled, and that is just a lie. Because once we get down at night, and when we slow down, and that peg slows down, we see that we are empty and things are flowing past that triangle so fast that it's not going to satisfy. And it's, it's hard and it's rough. So we ignore it and we speed it up the next day and we, we just forget all about it, right? Because we want what we want. We're not going to go that way. So the, here's the world's way. They say, um, you ever heard the expression, in hot, out hot? On a relationship. So if they come in hot and heavy and you see them in high school or if you see them in the workplace, they're all, you hear rumors that they're fooling around or whatever, but they're, they're making out in the hallway in, in high schools and whatever. So they're in hot. Um, how's that relationship usually end? Yelling and screaming or a division in the office or it, it goes out hot, right? So in hot, out hot. Um, hurt people hurt people, Okay. Hurt people hurt people. What I mean by that, when you're hurt and you're broken, you're trying to fill yourself with somebody else, when you walk out of that relationship, you're going to hurt people on the way out. What's a good sign that your partner's hurt? Well, because you're hurt, hurting because of them, right? There's possible to get help and get them what they need. So physically, we're willing to use our bodies to get what we want, Sex for feelings, and emotionally, we're willing to use our emotions to get what we want, feelings for sex, right? Wow, didn't know we are going there this morning. I'm going to have to cover the ears of some of these youngins, but mine are the two youngest ones in here today, so they need to hear it just like anybody else. So then we're left with this spiritualness that comes together, and we have this lie that we believe, if, I just, if we just come together, if we just get married We'll be fine. Everything will come together. Well, what's the problem with that? Is you become codependent. Or you have one dominating, one partner dominating the other partner. And that's dangerous as well, right? So, or you have a selfish marriage where one is always giving and the other one's always taking or you're both taking from the relationship and you destroy anything you had that resembled love. When Chip Ingram draws this out um, in his marriage thing, in his marriage series, and it's really good, if you're going down that path, you should look at that. He draws it out as a triangle. And he says you built a foundation on the physical, on sex, and then you have this kind of secretive relationship, and then you start to make it a little bit deeper, and then pretty soon you go and you tell your uh, friends about it, and if it's good, then you might... Tell your brother or sister about it a little bit. And then you might bring him or her home to meet the family. And then, oh yeah, we might, might want to put a ring on her finger. So yeah, we should probably get married in a church for some reason. And today we don't even do that, right? We'll go down to the courthouse or we'll go out to the park and we'll have Chuck 
my best friend officiate that, right? Why is that wrong? Because marriage is a covenant, right? And I'm not saying I have to marry y'all, uh, officiate y'all weddings. I'm not trying to make any extra money. Um, but I have learned if you put the five hours, five to ten hours of premarital counseling in, it saves for the 30 to 40 post-marriage counseling hours that we will have to put in, okay? Because if you know what to expect from the front side, then you will know what the backside expectations are, right? So um, here's what God's way is. Because if the world's way is to have a narrow foundation, it goes up and then try to put God on top. It's going to teeter, it's going to fall, right? God's way is to flip that upside down. It's the same steps, but you put God first, and then you bring your family into it, and then your friends, and then um, you approach that person. This is somebody who I want to spend my life with because they're going to draw me closer to God, and then sex bonds everything together because it is the bonding agent for the covenant. It's a reminder to bring that marriage back to where it needs to be because it's not manipulation anymore. It's giving to give and not giving to get. What? That's true. True stories. Hope you're taking notes. That's right. When we surrender our relationships to the Lord, it looks like this, the spiritual. We're, first, we're devoted to God. Marriage is about sacrificial actions, right? It's about love personified marriages. So I'm going to give, and my wife gives, and we give together, and then we can draw ourselves closer to one another as we are drawn closer to God, and we have a bonding agent there that comes as a result of both having sacrificially loved one another, right? Why do you get up and do laundry? Because you don't like stinky clothes. That can be it for a little bit, though. It doesn't, 100 loads in, that ain't why you do the laundry anymore, right? You do it because you love the person that you're caring, doing laundry for, right? Same with all the other little things, right? It says in Song of Solomon, I think it's in chapter 2, beware of the little foxes in the vineyard. What does that mean? It means to watch out for those little things that are going to come up because those foxes, they would go up and nip the buds before they're even able to put grapes on because they were sweet to the taste. And so they would go and nip. Well, if it does enough of those, it takes away all your production of your vineyard, right? And so you got to trap the foxes. Make sure the foxes. Well, what are the foxes in your marriage? What are the little things that tend to go into big things? And if you can nip those before they get started, and if you can communicate before that happens, then you have success in your marriage before it even becomes a fight. Right? You seen that before? It's, if, watch out for the little things, right? If our husband or wife draws us near to the Lord, that is good relationship, and we hopefully draw them near to the Lord. Marriage is not an addition problem, folks. It is not half a person, 50% plus 50% equals 100%. It's not an addition problem. It's a multiplication problem. It's one person times one person times the Holy Spirit equals one good marriage. One times one times one equals one. It's a multiplication problem. Because what if you take a half a person times a half a person, what are you left with? A quarter of a person, right? It doesn't work that way. You can't have that. That's called codependency. 
when you think that other person is going to fulfill your life and fulfill who you are, that's a lie straight for Satan, and it will drag you down for the rest of your life, and you will never fulfill your full potential because you're trying to fill theirs. doesn't make sense, and it doesn't work. Can God rescue a marriage that's already, you're already in the marriage like that? Absolutely. Absolutely he can rescue that, right? We're just talking the 40 hours of counseling afterwards, right? <laughs> it, it takes time. It does take time. When you walk into a marriage like that and you're walking back out, sometimes God can heal instantly, can he? Amen? Oftentimes when it comes to matters of the heart and things that are changing your philosophy, sometimes it takes a long time to walk out of that too. One of the two, it's usually instant or working hard, uh, depending on what lessons you got to learn. God mends the brokenhearted when we surrender to our relationships. Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 13, it says, Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children from Jacob. She became jealous of her sister. It's a great relationship here. She pleaded with Jacob, give me a child or I'll die. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? He says, he's the one who has kept you from having children. Way to stand on your principles now. And then he falls right off in the next sentence. Then Rachel told him, here, take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her and she will bear me children for me and, and through her I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan for she said, God has vindicated me and he has heard my request and given me a son. Okay, I'm just going to say this is probably the last positive. There's one other positive thing I think about Dan and the rest of the Bible, okay? Dan never makes the mark after that. They struggle hard, okay? So, and I kind of wonder if it, it's a result of this as well. Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Jacob named him Naphtali, for he says, I've struggled hard with my sister and I'm winning. Naphtali doesn't do too bad down the road. Um, meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, so she took her servant Zilpah and gave her, gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon Zilpah presented him with a son. Leah named him Gad, for she said, I am how fortunate I am. And Zilpah gave Jacob a second son. Leah named him Asher, for she said, What joy is mine now that the other women will celebrate with me. Folks, don't sacrifice your integrity to idols. They heard that God's going to make them a great nation. And they're like, we are going to help God out by making sure that we have what we need. And it just doesn't work that way. What do you not see in this passage of Scripture? I, I see that God hears them, so they were praying, but we don't have any specific prayers recorded in here that say, what do you want me to do, God? What's your will for this? And certainly Jacob didn't do that, right? What did he get out of it? Four partners, right? Sex, sex, and sex. All right, right? That's not a good motivation. Not a good motivation, right? Here's a great example of a man who's standing on his principles on the first verse and then falls right off um, once he's offered sex. Instead of seeking after God and his guidance, 
he puts a sole responsibility right on God's shoulders. He says, I'm not, I'm not the one that's stopping. I'm doing my part. It's God that's stopping you from having kids. Way to go, Jacob. Way to be sensitive. I appreciate that. boy, Right? What an idiot. Sorry, if you've ever done that to your wife, you're stupid. But, and I say that with all the compassion I can give you. Am I God? He's the one that's keeping you from having children. Way to force it right into another woman's hands, right? Well, I can't do this. I'm going to do this. What happens to Rachel after she has two kids? Yeah, she dies. She dies in childbirth, yeah. When Benjamin is born, she dies. There's probably a reason why God's keeping her from having kids. Whose heart Who's Jacob's heart belong to? At this point, it's not, it's not God. It's probably Rachel, right? God's doing it out of compassion for the couple, and they don't even realize it. Um, that's just one reason. There's, there's probably thousands of reasons there, but um, I thought that was interesting. Jacob is under authority, and I don't think that's a bad thing. He says, God's the one that's doing this. It's not my fault. And he's, he's right. He's just not doing it very nicely. Um, he lacks the emotional response, such as, you know, compassion. And he drives Rachel to a poor decision, and the maidservants after that become concubines. And the house is divided once again, and it's divided again. And it's sad. So I want to challenge you. To have four feet on the floor, right? That's why we got the chair this morning. What do we learn in junior high? We learn valuable lessons. We learn tile is slippery, right? So what do we like to do in junior high? We like to sit like this, and we like to put, and if I do this, I'm fine, right? Because I got two feet, and I got two legs on the chair on the floor, and so I can bounce around, but what happens when I push back too far? My chair busts out, and I fall down, right? So we want to keep four feet on the floor. Whoa, I just about lost my microphone doing that. So keep four feet on the floor. What's your integrity worth? How much, how many legs does a chair have to have to have integrity to sit on? It's got to be at least three, right? chair we would hope to have four because that's usually how they're designed a stool sometimes has three right we used to have milking stools that we would have that have one and we have a two by four is just a t you sit on it and you had to create the other two with your legs and so you had one to sit on and two as your legs and that was your milking stool um that doesn't work as well four feet on the floor because life running through life like that doesn't ever help anybody does it God, though, he can mend the brokenhearted when we surrender our relationships with him. Let's finish off the passage that we're going to do today, 14 through 24. There we go. It says, One day during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel begged Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes, but... Leah angrily replied, 
wasn't enough that you stole my husband. Now you will steal my son's mandrakes too? Rachel answered, I will, give, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. This is like so wrong. Can you see this already? Like, I'm going to let you have your husband, like, because she has control. This is so broken. Can you see that it screams codependent? Okay. So that evening, as Jacob was coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with mandrakes, and my son is found. So the night he slept with Leah, and God answered Leah's prayers, and she became pregnant again and gave birth to a fifth son to Jacob and named him Issachar. She said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. Then Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. She named him Zebulun, for she said, God has given me a, a good reward. Now my husband will treat me with respect, for I have given him six sons. Later she gave birth to a daughter named Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named her, him Joseph, for she, she said, may the, may, God, may the Lord add yet another son to my family, which he does, and that'll be her, her last. Folks, we need to wait on the Lord. Wait on him in his timing. So first off, when it comes to marriage, I just want to get this out of the way. Because it's important, and I didn't know where to stick it in, but it needs to be said before we get through all this. Sex is not a weapon to use to hold against your partner. It just isn't. It's not a tool. It is something, it is a bonding agent that God's created to um, bring the marriage together as a whole. Once that happens, if you rip that apart, a little piece of you stays with that person. That's what that's why divorce is so ugly. That is why um, broken marriages are so hard. It's because emotionally, a little bit of you stays with that person. And if you do that over a dating sequence where you have sex with several different people, you leave a little bit of yourself with each one of those people, and you are broken. You are lost, and you don't know who you are. But praise God, he can redeem you and he can pick up those pieces and he can bring you back whole again and make you a whole person. But you can only do that through the love of Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can find redemption there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 explains that how sex is not a weapon. It says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so Satan will not be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Remember, sex is that bonding agent that is used by God to bring marriage partners closer, to remind of the covenant. Second is like this, and this is what we'll be closing with this morning. My heart breaks for these women, right? 
Jacob should have stepped up. Men, we have the responsibility to lead in our households. We have the responsibility to recognize when our wives' hearts are hurting, and we have to come in with compassion and love that Jesus Christ, our Savior, did. Look at how he treats the woman at the well. Does he come on and say, look, this is my authority, and I have this over you? Does he do that to Mary Magdalene? No, he doesn't. Any of the women that work with him in in ministry, Mary and Martha, does he say, well, Martha, just toughen up. You like to serve, and Lazarus is dead. That's just what it is. No, he has compassion with her. He comes alongside, and he weeps with her. And then he gets angry at death, and he resurrects Lazarus. Right? He moves mountains for his bride, which is the church. We should be doing the same thing and setting that example because love requires what? Sacrificial action. Good, you're listening. Thank God. <laughs> These gals, they fight over their husband because their dad set him up that way. What a manipulator Laban is. If you ever study Laban, man, he is just a jerk. We're going to find out how big of a jerk he is next week. Oh, man, he sets the jerk level high. Um, matter of fact, the jerk store called, and they're running out of you, Laban. That's right. And then he turns around to Jacob and says, well, you're their number one bestseller. Jacob's not much better. And then they drag their boy right into it. Reuben, the firstborn, he wants to be recognized. Love me, Dad. Look at me. And he's still waiting from the son from Rachel. We know he favors that son from Rachel. Reuben always longs for his dad's approval. Don't make your sons do that, by the way, Dad. Don't go home and tell them how much you appreciate your sons. That is really important. Um, that's a phone call today. And if you got daughters and that's all you got, let them know too. That is such, it's so important for dads to be in a marriage and engaged. Why do you think we started a men's group? That's, that's the biggest reason. Because if you can change the heart of a man in a marriage, you better watch out because that, that's going to do something for that household and it's going to do for something for that community and it's going to do something for uh, the church of Jesus Christ in the whole, right? That's why we do that. Because Satan, he can come after us a lot easier, men, than he can women. Why? Because God created women to be more sensitive to spiritual things. I really think so. I think we can harden our hearts and ignore what God has for us. So we must remember the next time we're about to beat the hornet's nest to ask a few things in our marriage. One, before we lash out, before we say something stupid, do we pray about it? Before we're going to stand on this hill, did we pray about it? Is this a hill that I need to die on? Right? It says in Isaiah 40, 31, it says, But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. God will give us the strength to see, to see through our convictions and stand upright on the other side. God will give us self-control to wait on the Lord. Did it really need to be done right then? Sometimes it does. Sometimes we have to bark. 
sometimes. But oftentimes, we have plenty of time where we ignored it until the last minute, and now we're barking. It could have been prevented if we would have watched out for those little foxes, right? So trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will set your path straight. That's the next one, the verse. It says, is this on our timing or on God's timing? Did we force the timetable by waiting till the last minute to do it? It's like uh, praying for a test um, at school or praying for a last-minute project that we didn't do prepare for well enough at work. And we say, Lord, if you just help me on this, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. And, and we get a flippin' prayer, or as we learn from church camp, a pathetic prayer, right? We'd all say, that's pathetic as little kids growing up. So think about this. What do we know about Rachel? How many kids did she have? She had two. What happens after she has Benjamin? She passes away, right? The Lord knows our steps better than we do. Therefore, we need to wait on the Lord. She had this desire in her heart for children, and that's great. It's a great desire to have. But the timing wasn't right, and God wanted her to wait. I don't know what he was working on in her life, but he works on something, and it, um, it, it never works out after Benjamin because she passes away, right? Solving earthly problems with earthly solutions is never a good idea. When we surrender to the Lord, that means we surrender our problems to him as well as our glories, right? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. Doesn't he carry those burdens better than we do? And does he hear us? Absolutely he hears us. Right, he hears us because God mends the brokenhearted when we surrender our relationships to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you died on the cross and rescued us from this present evil age. Lord, we pray that you would come alongside our marriages and that you would lift them up and that we would learn to love each other sacrificially, that we would learn to love our parents and our children sacrificially. Lord, I pray that you would be with those that are ill this morning. We pray that those that are um, fighting for their life right now, Lord, we pray that you would uh, lift them up to heal them, to guide them in your truth. Lord, we pray that you would watch over um, the new baby uh, that we have um, with um, Devin and Michael's baby. Pray that you would watch over them and uh, as they're going to have a lot of sleep loss and things, Lord, we pray that you would just lift up Landon and um, just allow him to be a, a wonderful addition to their family. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that you are giving us a heart to love the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. As we go through every part of this day, help us to live to love you and to love the people who cross our paths, starting with our families. 
Don't let us miss the adventures you are sending our way to live and to speak the good news about Jesus today. Draw our hearts close to you and to specific people you want us to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform us into followers of Jesus who love you, who love people, who make disciples, who make more disciples. Ad infinitum. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.